So in the first service, I brought this stool out, and a young boy said to his father, oh boy, it's going to be a long sermon if that guy needs to sit down. So I just want you to know, it's going to be standard-sized sermon, okay? So um, don't worry. So there's a story about a young guy named Jake. His friends called him JJ for short. And JJ was looking for a little adventure in his life, and why not? He was single. He was 24 years old. He was cooped up in downtown Chicago working an office job, and he just wanted to get out into the wild lands of Montana. So he had some family connections. They knew a guy out there, a big-time rancher, a guy named Larry, who was a very successful rancher, had a huge ranch. He was pretty shifty, pretty crooked, pretty manipulative guy, but he knew what he was doing with the ranching. So JJ went out there. And uh, when he went out there, he met uh, Larry's daughter, a young woman named Ray. Ray was a very fine rancher in herself, and she was also beautiful. And JJ fell head over heels in love. So they spent a little time together, and uh, JJ knew exactly what he wanted. So he went to Larry and said, I'd like permission to marry your daughter. And Larry, scoffed. He said, listen, city boy, you obviously don't know how we do things here out in the West, out on the ranch. You don't just come in here and ask for my daughter's hand in marriage. You work, and then you work, and work, and you slave yourself to the bone, and you prove yourself, and I'll think about it. So J.J. worked, and he worked, and he worked. He was in love. He kept working. A year passed, another year, another year. Larry, nope, not yet. Another year, nope, not yet. Seven years he worked. Finally, Larry relented, and they were married. Now, you'd think that J.J. was really bitter, resentful. But according to this old tale, he wasn't resentful at all because the time just went by like that because he was in love. And when you're in love, these years just flew by. Now, some of you may recognize I've taken an old story from the Bible, revised it, retold it, made some adjustments, not corrections, just adjustments, just to shorten it a little bit. It's actually the story that's found in the book of Genesis. It's a story about a young man named Jacob who fell in love with a woman named Rachel. And Laban is the guy we're talking about here shifty farmer. And it says in the story, which actually, actually Jacob had to wait 14 years, work 14 years to get Rachel's hand in marriage. But it says in Genesis chapter 29, it says, those years seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. There's a principle at work here, principle in all of life. And that is, when you're in love, when your heart is in love, and I'm not just talking about a feeling of love, the romantic notion of love, I'm talking about the deep commitment of love. When you make a decision that you're going to love someone and you're going to stay with them, it really changes how you look at everything. Not just the relationship, but life. It changes your priorities. It changes who you're with, how you spend your time, how you spend your money. It changes everything, and it makes your joys 
multiplied. And it makes your trials and sorrows, it doesn't make them easy, it doesn't make them go away, but it makes them bearable. It makes them actually a little lighter. On the journey of life, it's like the wind at your back, it's like the sunshine on your road, and it keeps you going. Now that principle also applies to our relationship with God, according to the Bible. When you're in love with God, and again, I'm not just talking about the feeling, but I am talking about affections. I'm talking about our heart. I'm talking about our will. I'm talking about our mind. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said that. He said when you're in love with God, when you understand how the love of God has been poured out through the Holy Spirit into your lives, as Paul says in the book of Romans, when that love has been poured out into your hearts and you love back, your relationship with God, your following Jesus is not always easy. Sometimes it's really dark, and sometimes there's a lot of doubts and struggles and agony. But again, it, the joys are multiplied, and the sorrows and the suffering are not only bearable, but they're redemptive. <clears throat> they have purpose. So you may be thinking this morning, okay, how is that even possible, though? Jesus said the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do I do that? How do I even grow into that? How is that even possible? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure where you stand spiritually. You're not sure what you think about God. You're not sure if you're in or out with Christianity. Maybe you're here this morning and, yeah, you're in. You're here. You show up all the time. You work hard. You you do things for God. You do your duty. But love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? I just don't comprehend that. I don't get that. Why would anybody do that? Well, this morning I want to tell you that it is possible to have a breakthrough, to experience the love of God in a profound way. It is possible to break through to that love. So you actually have it, and you're growing in it. Here's the key. It's one word. It's the word trinity. Trinity is the Christian name for God. So, for instance, my son's friend, a guy from a post-Christian European nation, goes to school here in the United States. He asked me once, sat across from me in my living room, and he said, so tell me, who is God? He's got this distant, distant memory of Christianity in his country. Well, Somewhere in that conversation, if you talk about God, you're going to come up to the Trinity. Somehow, somewhere, because it is the Christian name for God. And that is the name that's like the key that unlocks the door that lets us go into an intimacy with God that we never thought was possible. So, Trinity, what does that even mean? Well, I talked to a couple of my really smart theologian friends. John is one of them. He was here in the first service. Of course, we've got Father Stephen over here. Here's how John defined it. He teaches theology for a profession. I said, give it to me in one sentence. What is the Trinity? Here's what he said. It means that God exists as a triune community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of other-focused holy love. Now, I might add inwardly delighting, outward-focused, holy love. There's a threeness to God's oneness. There's a oneness to God's threeness. 
As the early Christians said, as they were hammering this all out, they said, God is one. There's not three gods. There's not three pieces of God. God is one, just like any good Jewish believer would believe, and yet God is not alone. God is not a solitary God. God is not a lonely God. There is community within God. As those early Christians said again, distinct yet inseparable in being. So from all eternity, what was God doing before there was a world? God was love. God existed in a community of loving relationships. Love is not a new thing for God. It has always existed with God, and it's overflowing. That love within God overflows into creation and to us. Now, if you're going to make up a religion, this is not the way to do it. And those early Christians, I believe, were not just making something up. They were trying to make sense of all the data they were getting about who is Jesus and who is the Holy Spirit. And how does this all fit together? And they got together in councils and they hammered this out. And the church has given us a gift. And that is, the name for God is Trinity. Now, Thomas Jefferson, pre former president of the United States, go way back, he said, and I quote, he said, he called the Trinity incomprehensible jargon. And he said, quote, we need to get back to the pure and simple teachings of Jesus. Well, the pure and simple teachings of Jesus, did you hear our gospel reading this morning? The Jesus said the name of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptizing them in the name, not the name Zah, not three gods, not three pieces of God, not three modes of God, baptizing them in the name of the one God, one name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. So, so far you might be thinking, it's kind of technical, kind of abstract. I'm not a theologian. Let me, let me picture it this way. This might be helpful. One of the most common views for God in the Western world, there's other views for God, but just, let's just do with one. One of the most common views for God in the Western world is what we might call the solitary monarch view of God. It is God sitting on his throne, and he's alone because he's God. So imagine yourself. Imagine you. Might have to think real hard here. Imagine you are God. Why would you create a world? I mean, you exist. People say, well, how could God exist forever? Well, something has to have existed forever, whether it's matter or whether it's something or whether it's God. I think it's just as reasonable to say God has existed forever, so you exist. You're almighty. You're powerful. You're not really merciful because you don't have anybody to show mercy to. But why would you want to create a world? Well, maybe you're just good-hearted and you want to just share it. Or maybe you need some servants to do your bidding, some people to carry your luggage, so to speak, some valets, a world full of valets and butlers for you. Maybe you're insecure. You need people to worship you. You need people to tell you how great you are all the time. Now, there's better and worse versions of this solitary monarch view of God, and it's not all untrue. Some of it's true, but with the solitary monarch view of God, there's a sneaking suspicion that God is kind of incomplete. He's kind of insecure, maybe needy, maybe a little egotistical. 
And he needs something from us. He's got to take from us. And we're like, I could do my duty for that God. I could fear that God. I could obey that God. But love that God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? I don't think so. So that's the solitary monarch view of God. What's the triune view of God? The Christian name for God. The Bible's view of God. It's three in one. One in three. Think of it this way. Let me picture it this way. Okay? Use the space. And there's some things wrong with this illustration. I know that. But just stick with me, okay? So God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. God the Father. It's like the sign of the cross that Christians always, always often make. So what did Jesus say in the Gospels? The name of God, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Here's another verse. You find this pattern all over in the Bible. Jesus said this. He said, I and the Father are one. There's another verse. John chapter 1, verse 18. I'll just read some of these to you. It says, No one has ever seen God, the Father. But the only God, talking about Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Here's another one from the Gospel of John. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. You get the pattern here? You get the flow? One more, because I just never really dance in church, so I get to dance. So here's the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see the Trinitarian dance? The early church in about the 8th century, they came up with a specific word for this, but the idea developed actually earlier. It's the word perichoresis, choresis, choreography, dance. It suggests the, the fact that the members of the Trinity are so involved and distinct and yet together, one. You find this pattern all over in Scripture. So you just you, you start reading the Bible and you go with that lens on, and it's like, oh my gosh, it's there, and it's there, and it's there. How could I have missed that? Let me give you another picture of what this is like. So Jesus said this in the Gospel of John. He put it this way. He's praying. It's before his death on the cross, and he says, he prays to God the Father. He says, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So what was God doing before he created something? He had another beside him. He was in union. He was in community. He was pouring out glory on his son, and his son was pouring out glory on him. Now, what is glory? Glory means to honor somebody, to promote somebody, to proclaim somebody, to lay down your life for somebody, to affirm somebody, to tell somebody how special they are. Have you ever had a relationship like that? Do you have one right now? I hope, I hope you do. Could be a marriage, could be a girlfriend, could be a boyfriend, could be not a romantic partner, just a friend, maybe a mentor. 
somebody that you look up to, and, and you, you just feel like, you feel glory towards them, and they feel the same way towards you, and you want to share that. And even though we are sinful, and even though we're needy, and even though we have all our insecurities and all our bentness, there's still, there's this love. It's like a little taste of heaven. Well, it's a taste of heaven because that's what goes on in heaven all the time between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's why God can be infinitely happy from all eternity because God has this other-focused love and honor and glory. And then it spills out to us, and we're invited into that. Now, let me just say, okay, you might be thinking, okay, this is just a little new. I believe in the Trinity. I preached on the, I preached on the Trinity, Trinity in 2005, 12 years ago, at my church out in Long Island. And I read the notes. I actually have a manuscript. And it's a decent sermon. I didn't, don't think I said anything heretical. I don't think I said anything too off base. But it's just not a lot of emotional connection. There's just not a lot of heart in it. It's missing heart. It's very factional, very informational, but not life transformational. How does this get to be life transformational? Well, 1,600 years ago, there was a guy named Augustine. We call him St. Augustine, St. Augustine, St. Augustine. He was an African man, lived in northern Africa, brilliant thinker, philosopher. For many years, he lived a very unchristian life. His mother was a really devout Christian, prayed for him all the time, hoped that he would come to salvation. Augustine was living a very immoral life that he didn't really feel too badly about, had a son out of wedlock, um, just not going in a very good direction met Jesus Christ, became a profound leader and thinker in the early church. One of the books he wrote was a book called simply On the Trinity. And in that book, he explored all this theology that I've been talking about and explored all this Bible stuff, explored all the relationships within the Trinity. And he got to the end of that book and he said, basically, I'm paraphrasing, I've used a whole lot of words and I'm tired of writing about this. And now I think it's time to pray. And so he prays. So he turns from analyzing and the theologizing, and he prays, and he prays this. He says, help me, God, the triune God, to seek you passionately. Or the Latin could also be tra translated with burning desire. Help me seek you with burning desire. Because the Trinity is not an intellectual concept. Trinity is alive. Trinity is a Christian name for God. So he said it's like a lover pursuing a beloved. It's like a bride running to her bridegroom. It's got to be seek with that kind of passionate intensity. And he said this earlier in the book. He said, that believing in God, this triune God, is like, and I quote, it's like traveling along the street of love together as we make our way toward God. Wow, what a picture of the church. It's a bunch of people from different backgrounds, different problems, different issues, traveling on the street of love 
together until we find our way to God. We're sometimes broken, sometimes doubting, sometimes struggling, sometimes helping somebody, sometimes being helped by somebody, but we're traveling on the street of love together as we find our way to God. But Augustine said, you also, there's no finding God without a change in the seeker. When we seek God, when we meet the triune God, it changes us. We start to become more like him. We start to come to have more joy and more delight in not just sucking things into ourselves, not just getting our needs met. We come to have more delight and more joy, not just a duty, not just a burden, not just because we're supposed to, what changes our character, and we start slowly, bit by bit, we start pouring out some of that same love that's within the triune God. Now, <clears throat> I said before that we can have a breakthrough to this love, which assumes that a lot of us have walls or doors up, a barrier to this love. We're on one side. That real love is on the other side. So all week long, I've just been having this picture of like, here's this door, this great big door. And you go through the door, and you go into this room, and in this room is a life of delight and other-focused love, the dance of triune love that has existed from all eternity. And the key to open the door is faith in the living God and in the risen Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I thought about, you know, some people, and I, I can relate to all three of these. I'm going to talk about three categories of people, see if you relate to one of them. First is people who say, I'm unworthy to go through that door. I look at my love, and it's kind of pathetic sometimes. I can be really selfish. Even when I'm doing good things for people, I have an agenda. I want to get something from people. So there's inconsistency. There's unfaithfulness. There's greed. There's lust. There's all kinds of things that's like twisted. That's not like this triune God. And I just say, I'm unworthy to go through the door. Well, here's the thing. You are unworthy. That's the bad news. I am unworthy. Part of that's right. It's true. Because we have a problem that's so severe, so damaged, so broken, so sinful, so fallen, that the triune God had to do a rescue operation to save us from our sin and our brokenness and our fallenness. And the Bible describes it in one verse just like this. It says, God, talking about God the Father, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There's that pattern again. So when Jesus was dying for our sins on the cross, it wasn't like, oh, okay, I guess I'll do this. And God the Father was going, yeah, you better do that. That's your job, okay? I'm not getting involved. That's not it at all. God the Father was in God the Son, dying for us, reconciling the world to himself, pouring out his love on us, a fallen and broken humanity. And it's because of what he's done that you and I can go through that door and say, I'm not worthy, but Christ has paid the price. Christ has opened the door. He's paved the way. And on his authority and his work, I can go through. 
Some people are hostile, second group. Some people are hostile. Some people are suspicious. Christopher Hitchens, famous atheist, British atheist, who became an American citizen who died a few years ago. He wrote a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. He said that believing in God, this God, that the God on the solitary monarch God, which was the only view of God he could imagine, was like, and he said, I quote, living under the dictator of North Korea. Now, I don't know if you know, if we all know how bad things are in North Korea. I think if he would have really realized how bad that is, I think he would have realized that's a pretty insensitive analogy. That's pretty bad. But maybe he was trying to be insensitive. I don't know. But I would say that's completely wrong. I mean, maybe for the worst view of the solitary monarch view of God, that makes sense. But not for the triune God. The triune God that has existed in a dance of love for all eternity, overflowing with love to creation, even willing to overflow in love to redeem us from our sin. That's not a picture of God at all. This is a God who wants us to share in his delight, who wants to transform us so we become more like him. The third kind of person is the person who might say, well, I'm, a, I'm a super church person. I'm a super Christian person. I got my head down. I'm doing my duty. I'm doing the right thing. I'm obeying God. I'm not going to screw up. I, I'm a person of honesty. I'm in, I have integrity. I'm righteous. I'm living for the Lord. And you're tired. And you're self-righteous. And you feel condemned. And you just want to bust out of that. Of course you do. Because that's not the way you were designed to live. Yes, we obey God. Yes, we surrender our lives to him. But we surrendered as people on this side of the door, not on that side of the door. As people have walked into this community of delight and love and outward focus. So this morning, I pray that you would encounter the living God, the true and living God the God of outpouring love, the God of delight, the God of the Trinitarian love and dance, and that you would come to him and say, Lord, I need you. There's a pattern in the Bible that goes like this. The Father begets the Son who sends the Spirit who touches us and awakens our heart, and the Spirit awakens us and we cry to Jesus, and Jesus is the mediator to God the Father. Now that might be complicated, but that's just a way to say that God, the triune God, has provided the way for you to come home and provided the way for you to be transformed, to be more like him. Amen.